The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, a gentleman who has had a great impact in my career, Dr. Roy Fox. He is actually a professor emeritus and former chair of the Department of Learning, Teaching, and Curriculum at the University of Missouri, where he also directed the Missouri Writing Project, and he now serves as president of the Missouri Writing Project Collaborative. What I find so interesting about Dr. Fox is his research that focuses on the teaching and learning of writing and language as well as media literacy. And that's how I discovered his work. I was walking home from the University of Missouri where I was employed in the nutrition department, and I was working largely on childhood obesity initiatives. And I picked up a campus newspaper, read an article about Dr. Fox's work in media literacy, and the title of a book he had recently written titled Harvesting Minds, How TV Commercials Control Kids. And it's been 16 years since I picked up this book, but I have to say that this did more to change the approach that I took about teaching food and nutrition than probably anything else. So, Dr. Fox, welcome. Thank you very much, Melinda. I want to know how, as an English professor, you became interested in media literacy. It's from the get-go. It's from probably junior high. You know, the word and the image, and when I say the image, I think in terms of film, television, painting, any kind of art. So I was always interested in both English language and art. And so I was an art major as an undergraduate for a couple of years and then switched to English. And I became increasingly interested in language and in art and for the rest of my career, I dealt with them separately, and then I dealt with them together. In terms of language, I was very much influenced by S.I. Hayakawa, who was a senator from California some time ago, but better known as a general semantics expert. And then in the late 70s, I served on what was called the Committee on Public Doublespeak, and that was a nationwide committee composed of English teachers and writers and and people like that who kept track or tried to keep track of dishonesty in public discourse. So we were trying to do that and call attention to liars in public, whether it was the IRS or Ronald Reagan or the Defense Department or whoever, and then they would receive a public doublespeak award each year. We also gave a George Orwell award for honesty and clarity in public discourse. So a long-time service on that committee, and that very naturally got me into the manipulation of the image by the early 90s. And I did a book called Images in Language, Media, and Mind because purpose of that book was to lay out 
how and why imagery is central and common to language, to media, and also to thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still believe that very much today. So after that came a couple of other books and a number of articles that focused on media literacy. I worked to get it into the standards for English teachers and so forth, and then got to Harvesting Minds, which was about captive audience advertising. Public schools at that time, and I believe many still today, have what's called Channel One, which is piped into schools all around the country from California. And it is a 10-minute program with two minutes of commercials. And it's a captive audience. Students are not allowed to put their head down or go to sleep, and teachers cannot turn the volume off or down or anything else. Uh, So I started looking into that and was pretty taken aback, I guess I should say, with what I found going on in such an innocuous place as a public school. And these were rural public schools. Right, that were especially needy for resources. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, we should probably step back a moment. And let's say you just walked into an elevator, you just met somebody for the first time, and you want to explain to them in a nutshell, what is media literacy? Media literacy is being as analytical as you can about not just the language in media, but also the visuals that are represented. That is, you should ask questions, you should research things that you don't know, you should try to view media as objectively as possible, look at the sponsors, look at the commercials, look at the intended audience. If nothing else, talk with other people or write about what you're seeing and try to evaluate it and see it as objectively as possible. And the more that media has proliferated, uh, the more difficult that's become. Absolutely. And the reason why I really appreciated your work was because all of the efforts that public health professionals were working at so wholeheartedly to improve children's health. Mm -hmm. So we were encouraging them to eat more vegetables. We were encouraging Mm -hmm. them to exercise more. They weren't working. And it was your book that pulled off the blinders for me and made me see a whole different world and sphere of influence, which was media. And in Harvesting Minds, and I should let our listeners know that the copyright on this book was 1996 and then again in 2000, Mm -hmm. we were really focused back then on television and this Channel One, which is, I think most parents would be alarmed to know that their children were being manipulated in such a way. Mm -hmm. But... Now, today's children have so much more media to navigate, and their parents have to navigate a world where their child might not be cool if they don't have the latest mobile device that introduces further commercial influence. You're absolutely right. And from my perspective, I don't think that as a society we really understand television, let alone so-called fake news, let alone the really many media outlets. 
and the advertising and manipulation that goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very, very difficult to keep up with. One of the things I, I like to mention is that, you know, the U.S. was one of the uh, last places, one of the last developed countries to get into media literacy. Other countries in Western Europe were there first, whether the Netherlands or the United Kingdom, Australia, and so forth, New Zealand. And one of the reasons for that was that in the 70s, American television was packaged and sold kind of in bulk form. So you couldn't buy one program. You had to buy a package of several programs. And so these other countries on the receiving end of those packages arrived at a need for media literacy before it happened here. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not good for business as a rule. Right, Mm -hmm. right. What is so interesting to me and what really struck me about Harvesting Minds, and I'll give you an opportunity to describe the research that went into this book, but that we take for granted, I think, that we can navigate media. And even those of us who have been trained in media literacy, which I went on to do after reading this book, we think that as a group we are largely immune to media's effects when when in actuality – we are very much manipulated by media messages, myself included. So tell me, what were your aha moments in this research? Describe the research that went into this book, and tell me some of the salient points that came to you as a result. Sure. I'm what's called a qualitative researcher, which means I don't analyze numbers like a quantitative researcher does, but I analyze language. And that is a spontaneous language from, in this case, students in interviews and follow-up questions and all of that sort of thing. I would record the interviews and listen to them several times and look for patterns and long and involved process. Some of the aha moments that came out of that research, it went over two years, and I interviewed more than 200 students in rural schools. And some of the things that I learned from that, and we're talking about a captive audience, you know, exposed to commercials two minutes a day that were very much like MTV commercials. Lots of flashing colors and lights and quick edits and and all of those kinds of things that MTV kind of made famous. One of the things that I found, and I'm going to tick off three or four of them, One of them was what I called blurring, and um, I found that students often did not know the difference between a public service commercial for like the Mercy for Animals or something like that Mm -hmm. and a real for-profit commercial commercial. They would ascribe the wrong qualities to a for-profit commercial, and they would assume that a PSA, a public service announcement, you know, might be something else. So they they were always often blurring the lines between what's a public service and what is for profit. That was one thing. One of the big things that I discovered was what I call replay behavior. And I saw a lot of different manifestations of that. Students would repeat phrases verbatim in the hallway, on the bus, in gym class, after school, Be Like Mike was a popular ad phrase from the time. 
they would act out commercials. There was a sequence of events in a 30-second or one-minute commercial. They would sometimes act it out and sometimes put their own spin on it, but not so much their own spin. One example of their acting out commercials was school was at a football game, and some kid went up to the drums and started pounding out got to be, got to be dominoes, which was an old ad phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and the crowd started chanting that with the drum beat. And that was just a spontaneous thing. They would repeat or replay certain phrases like I mentioned, such as flavor crystals, which appeared in a commercial for dentine gum or something. And they talked about it and thought about it as if flavor crystals was a real thing that's in the gum. Yeah. They would dream of advertising or dream of commercials. And and when they did, uh, and I got into this as much as I could, they were not the stars of their own dreams. I mean, they were in the dreams, but the product was front and center. One of the, uh, this is the final one I'll mention, I was leaving a school one day and stopped, because I'm interested in art, and I stopped and looked at uh, a display case of art projects. And I'm standing there staring at them, and I realize, well, I'm seeing some commercials here. (laughs) And so I went back and asked the art teacher, what was the assignment of those pieces in the glass case? And she said, well, they were self-portraits. They were to create a three-dimensional self-portrait of themselves. Well, one of them, and there's a photo of it in the book, is uh, the little man on the Pringles potato chip can. Another one was the um, Energizer bunny. But see, these are supposed to be self-portraits, but they chose kind of iconic ad images for that. Mm -hmm. So the bottom line there for me is that ad messages insinuate themselves into students, into their language, into their behavior, into their consumer behavior, even into their kind of subconscious life, if you count dreams in that category, Hmm. um, which I do. So those were just a few of the surprises, I guess I should say. Yeah, it's fascinating. Let me take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Roy Fox. He is a professor emeritus and former chair of the Department of Learning, Teaching, and Curriculum and Curriculum at the University of Missouri, where he also directed the Missouri Writing Project. He is the author of one of the most cherished books I have on my shelf, titled Harvesting Minds, How TV Commercials Control Kids. And I should add that you've written many books, you've received international accolades, and you also speak nationally and internationally about writing, teaching, media, therapeutic language, and literature. And you also served as a Fulbright Scholar to Ireland in 2016, and hopefully we'll get to that later. But I have to go back to this book because it was such a shock to me as a public health educator. And one of the comments that you made earlier was one of the phrases that the kids would repeat, be like Mike. And that, of course, referred to Michael Jordan. And he's a very popular athlete. The ad played repeatedly for several months. But I remember when the students were asked why do you think Michael Jordan is in the ad? And the response 
from some of the students were that, well, it makes him more popular. You know, it wasn't because Michael Jordan is getting paid to do this advertisement. And that was a big aha moment for me. Yes, yes. And that also relates back to the public service ads. At least at the time that I was doing that research, it was popular in commercials or kind of a fad in commercials to kind of make it look like a documentary, to kind of make it look like uh, they would use like a swinging camera and do weird unusual camera angles and the people who were in the commercial would appear to be unaware that they were being filmed. And so when I got into asking students, well, who do you think is making these commercials? And it was not unusual for them to think that, oh, it was just a kind of a random camera on a random truck or something (laughs) that was just driving around and happened to film these people uh, as like uh, an extemporaneous kind of documentary. Right. Whereas in reality, of course, it's very scripted. That's right. Yes. Well, I think that today's children then face a much uh, more complicated media environment. And as you say, Channel One still exists and schools are hungrier for money than ever as our public budgets have been cut. Yes. You still work with teachers and children, and I wonder, what are the take-home messages that you want parents and teachers and students to know about how we are manipulated and how we can be smarter consumers of media? Well, that's a great question. Let me start with kind of a big issue. When you and I were growing up, uh, and George Gerbner talks about this, he talks about society's storytellers. And when we were growing up, the stories that we were exposed to, and everybody learns from stories. I learned from sitting at the kitchen table from my father and from my grandparents and maybe a church minister or maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe grandparents and often teachers aunts and uncles, I mean, we learned from people who did not have something to sell us. And the difference between then and now is that most of the stories that kids grow up with in the culture come from people who have something to sell. And there are at least, there are two big problems that. One is that the older founts of wisdom that we grew up with, the people who we learned stories from who did not have something to sell, they had nothing to gain. And we accepted it as legitimate, as true, and learned from it. You flash forward to the current time, and there is a note of falseness, a note of fakery in the messages that gets communicated to students. Now, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily always conscious of it and always reject those, but what happens when you're surrounded only by voices, and I'm talking about electronic voices, uh, internet, television, radio, everything, If you're surrounded by voices that have something to sell, 
that are also telling you that you're not good enough and you become insecure because you're not matching the ideal. You're not as, as beautiful as the woman on the cover of Vogue magazine or you're not as handsome as this TV star. You want to fix that by buying a product. Well, that product often will not work. And so you buy more products, and that may not work. And so you become demoralized and, and can become frustrated. That is, I think that's a, a large societal problem. Mm-hmm. The other problem that I see as a writing teacher and that I've seen as, as a teacher of all kinds of groups is that if media is filling uh, all of the spaces, as I believe it does, people do not develop and trust their own internal voice. You know, they're looking outside of themselves for legitimacy, for glamour, for authority. They're not developing their own voices. And I, as a writing teacher, I've seen that much, much more than I would want to. That is fascinating. I often wonder, too, you worked with rural students. I'm assuming that urban students would have had the same reaction, but I'd like to get your feedback on that. And then also, just this the situational media exposure, you're not watching one-on-one, you know, you're not one person with the media source, you're in a group which influences how a person thinks about the media exposure. Well, yeah, absolutely. Much is made of media and particularly the Internet as really focusing on very specific groups and that we all stay in our own little silo. And I think there's validity to that. In terms of the the urban students, I've worked with many fewer of them simply because of my location. But when I have, it has been really pretty much the same situation. Mm -hmm. And I just want to let our listeners know, you had mentioned George Gerbner's name. He was the Dean Emeritus for the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, and he wrote the foreword to your book. And he brings up some very important points about students having a sense of detachment and very much needing analytical skills. And if this isn't even truer today, I don't know what is. I want to jump because we just have a few minutes left. And I think that the work that you're doing now is extremely important, looking at trauma and using writing as a way to navigate trauma. Please tell us about that work you're doing now. Well, thank you. That book came out a year or two ago, and it took me about 10 years to do that not because I was working on it full-time, I get pulled away and come back. But at one point, maybe about 12 years ago, I decided to teach a graduate course in using writing, or using literacy, I should say, primarily writing, but secondarily reading and media and literature as a way to address an individual's trauma. And I define trauma as is physical or psychological or emotional, whatever it is that that person is carrying around with them. And one way to think of it is that, you know, we all have those 
traumas, and they end up being published, and I put quotes around that, published in some way. You know, some students may act it out and may become, you know, thieves and robbers or break the law and so forth. Others may engage in spousal abuse. I mean, who who knows? But typically, I would say things are published in some way. So I started doing a graduate course for teachers to use writing, but also kind of peer response, talking to each other about the traumas they've written about and literary treatments of traumatic experiences as well as media. And that was that runs over a semester. I just finished a course in the same thing with undergraduates in our honors college here. But one of the, the principles of that course is that the image is central to our communication and language. And it's central to the way that we think. And it's also central to media. So I'm dealing now with students who... They would say otherwise, but to many people, to many younger people, imagery is just as real as reality itself, where it is so common and so saturated in our environment that they often become blurred and blended in people's lives and in their minds. So I use both of those in order to address a traumatic experience. For example, they would be writing about a traumatic experience. They're in a small group, and they respond to each other's writing in a supportive atmosphere. And then they visualize or portray in some way that trauma. One of the things I have them do is physically, I do a, a thing called Monster and Angel. And they they portray the trauma as a monster. They write about it. They draw or paint or create an image, an actual image of the monster. But then later, I have them take that monster and physically tear it up, physically cut it into pieces and rearrange it in the form of an angel Hmm. or the opposite of that trauma. For example, a middle school student, her her grandmother was dealing with cancer. Her grandmother was also having to take care of her grandchildren, little bitty kids, because these kids' parents were drug users and in prison. Mm. So the child who is observing her grandmother created a marijuana joint as her monster. She took that same marijuana joint and transformed it into her angel by folding and reconstituting the marijuana joint as a cancer ribbon Hmm. that people wear. Oh, how interesting. Well, unfortunately, our time is up. You are blending art and media with public health, and that is so important in the work that we do. And I want to personally thank you on air for 
I'm very grateful to the influence that you've had in my career and blending media literacy into it. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Roy Fox, Professor Emeritus and former chair of the Department of Learning, Teaching, and Curriculum at the University of Missouri. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Fox, thank you so much for all of the positive ripples you've had in the world, and I'll make sure to provide links to your work online. It is my honor, and I continue to learn a whole lot from you, Melinda. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.